Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed himself through scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Well, open your Bibles with me again, if you would, to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. I don't know if uh, you've done the math here, but if you turn the page, you're, you're going to discover Acts chapter 28 is the last chapter in the book of Acts which means we're at the end. After a two-year series in teaching through the book of Acts, uh, we, now, now don't think the end, right? We can stretch one book into two years. We got one chapter. It's going to take us five weeks, all right? So we're not out the door yet, but we are, we're quickly approaching the end of this series, looking at the unstoppable mission of the church, the unstoppable call that went out to the early apostles of Jesus Christ, that unstoppable mission that goes out to those first churches that are planted, that unstoppable call that has carried down through the centuries to us today to testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would just say at the beginning of this, we don't get a day off from that. We don't get a month off. We don't get a year off or a decade off where we say, you know, I think we've actually accomplished the goal good enough for our church. Let's just gather together who we have, what we have, and just enjoy this and hope nothing ever changes. One of the things we've said throughout the years is I hope our church has difficulty really growing big numerically. Not because we're doing something wrong, but because we keep sending out our best people as gospel missionaries in other places to plant churches, to take the gospel where it has not gone. Oh, may God raise up a herd of missionaries from these children as they just went running out. Wouldn't that be a beautiful picture if we just poured into them just to see them run out the door, not to leave the faith, but to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Chapter 27 tells us Paul has just endured a shipwreck. He survived it after 14 days of being lost at sea, without hope, seasick, not eating anything, not knowing where they are. And the last verse in chapter 27 tells us that all 276 people were brought safely to land. Just as the angel had said to Paul, you're going to survive this shipwreck, and I've granted you the life of everybody who's with you, but the ship's going to be lost, the cargo's going to be lost, but I'm going to preserve. Not a single hair on their head would be lost. Verse 1 in chapter 28 says, After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begin, begun to rain and was cold. They're shipwrecked. They don't know where they are. They don't know exactly how they got there. They're really not sure how they're going to get off of this island. And then they get there and they discover, okay, this, this is an island called Malta. They don't know how they're getting off, but God's already worked that out. Isn't it something in our life when moments of panic and desperation come, we almost convince ourselves God doesn't have a plan for this. 
God has not worked out how I'm going to get out of this. Where we go from here. Uh, next week, if you come back, we're going to read in verse 11 that God already had a ship sitting there waiting for them. In fact, it was another Alexandrian ship, like the one that they had been on, that was wintering in the harbor here that's going to take them the last leg of the journey into Italy and then on to Rome. Didn't know it yet. Most of the time in the middle of our desperation, we just don't know it yet. We sang it together. Our God is for us. And if that's true, who can be against us? Except when we're in those moments where it feels like life is against us, the answer is feels like everybody. Feels like everything is against us. No, God is still in control. He still has a plan. You just don't know it yet. You just don't know exactly what that is. The fact is, they were blown off course. Do you remember this? They were trying to go about 30 miles, just a, sort of around the corner on Crete, and they were, there was a harbor that was just a little bit better, a little bit safer. If we can just make it, it was about half a day's journey, and they get blown 400 and 75 miles off course. That's a giant mistake if you're on open water. I would not have survived that mistake, right? If I was the captain of your ship, we are going down together, right? Uh, I don't know how to get us out of that, except in those moments of panic and desperation, what we forget is there is a God who is sovereignly ruling over all things. One of the things that happened is God blew them exactly on course. This was one of the routes to go from Myra to Rome. They just didn't know it. They thought they were lost at sea, but they were actually right on track. They were lost and scared and hopeless, and God's plan was still right on track. Christian, that is good news for you and me. When we feel lost and scared and hopeless, God's plan for your life is still right on track. There has a, This is Maybe the best quote I'm going to give you today. There has never been a single moment or molecule in human history or all of eternity that was outside of God's sovereign control. Consider with me how often we feel like our life is out of control. How often we feel like our life is treating us wrong or unfairly. And if I pushed you to say, okay, what's the problem? Well, actually, this person is the problem. Their attitude is the problem. The way that they treat me is the problem. This job is the problem. Our finances are the problem. Our kids are the problem. Listen again. There has never been one single moment or molecule in all of human history or all of eternity that was outside of God's sovereign control, not one. Here's why that's true. If there was one thing outside of the sovereign control of God, that moment, that molecule, that person, that devil would be God in that moment. It would be the supreme being whose will was being enforced in the earth, only that has never happened because our God is on the throne. Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, thought he was the supreme being in all of the earth, and God caused him to lose his mind. The end of Daniel chapter 4 his senses returned to him, and listen to the king, the most powerful ruler in the world, his words. He says, of God, his dominion, this is Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, including me. When placed against the sovereign power and will of God, all the inhabitants of the earth are as nothing. And he does according to his will 
among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Oh, our God is on the throne. Christian, in the midst of your storm and your shipwreck, our God is on the throne. He is sovereignly ruling over this moment. That doesn't mean that people aren't intending evil against you. Sometimes they do. I wish we didn't live in that world, but we do. And yet our God is superintending. He is ruling over those things. In fact, as they shipwreck, God has people waiting for them. The natives on this island. Now think about this. It's late fall when this whole lost at sea thing is going down. For 14 days, they've been lost in wind and rain and storm on the sea. Late fall, is it warm or cold? Getting kind of cold. Have you ever been cold in the rain on the sea? Anybody ever been on the open sea before? You don't even have to go to the open sea. Just go to Chicago. What does a cold, rainy, windy day make you feel like? It just freezes you to the bone. Then they crash up on the shore. They have to swim for safety. So as if they weren't cold and soaked to the bone already, they jump in the icy waters. They swim to this island where God already has people in place to help them. I would encourage and remind you, in the midst of your desperate moments, God already has people in place to help you. Usually we're just not looking for them. A lot of times when help comes our way, we say, no, thank you. I'm going to sort this out myself. God has put them there for your benefit. In fact, verse 2 says that they showed unusual kindness. I hope, I hope that if there was a shipwreck just outside our doors of this church, which is highly unlikely because we really don't have any water here, except for when it was spring two days ago, right, and everything was flooded. But I hope if there was a shipwreck that we would show kindness, that we would be helpful to them. Don't you hope? Like if something happened in your community that we would be helpful to them. And yet, it doesn't say that they were helpful. It says they showed unusual kindness. Luke, who's the author who's writing this, is a participant in the shipwreck. Luke had to swim for his life after 14 days lost at sea. And he says there was something unusual. There was something above and beyond in the way that they helped them. And then to make matters worse, after being frozen at sea and swimming for your life, what happens? It starts raining. That's when Eeyore in the crowd goes, that figures. <laughs> it's, just, it's just cold. It's, it's insult upon injury. And yet what are these precious people, the, these native people? In fact, the Greek word is actually barbarians. It doesn't mean that they were barbaric. It, that's just sort of the designation for anybody who doesn't have a Greek-speaking background. These people gather together, and they build a fire to keep them warm. They didn't have a shelter where you could take 300 people inside. Let me ask you a question. How big of a fire do you have to build to keep 300 people warm in the rain? We've never built a fire that big before, although it kind of sounds like fun. Just throw that out there. Everybody is pitching in. Everybody is grabbing bundles of wood. Every wood they can grab is headed for this giant fire that's going on. And verse 3 says, When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on a fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, I love the description there, hanging from his hand. Uh, again, that's a clue, eyewitness. Someone saw this happen. It didn't just bite and release. It's hanging on his hand. 
They said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. While they were waiting for him to swell up, very helpful at this point. I'm so glad that we have uh, a safety team who's thinking about your mental needs, and they're not going to, well, let's wait for it to swell up, I guess. <laughs> While they're waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, right? Uh, they waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him. And then they changed their minds and said, oh, wait, he's a god. This is a strange turn after a shipwreck. Just, it's as if you're watching a movie and each turn in the movie just gets more and more outlandish and ridiculous. Like, really? Lost at sea? Really? Shipwreck? Really? Bit by a poisonous snake? Except it's not just bit by a poisonous snake. This whole situation is surrounded with misunderstanding. And I think as we think about this, I want to give you one word to think about. All right, so if you're taking notes, just jot this word down, and it's punishment. Here's the thought. Was God punishing Paul? That was their assumption when they looked at it. Surely this guy did something terrible. This guy had to have murdered somebody, and God is pursuing him and is now punishing him. Is this like the story of Jonah, where Jonah was disobedient and God was pursuing him. Was God punishing Jonah upon that boat? Remember, they end up having to throw Jonah overboard so that the rest of the crew survives the storm. Here's why we're asking this question. When we go through adversity, usually the question that we say is, is God punishing me? Is this God's punishment in my life? Mistakes I've made, sins I have committed. I want you to listen super carefully to what we're about to say. If you want to sleep through the rest of the sermon, uh, God bless you. But if you see someone sleeping now, elbow them strongly and wake them up. You need to hear this. You ready? It's a quote from Paul Tripp. Since your thoughts always proceed and determine your actions, the theology you carry into times of suffering and trial are very, very important. See, if you start with a wrong presupposition, something that I'm supposing to be true about God and this moment of suffering, if you have a wrong theological understanding of what's happening, it will lead you to a wrong place. In fact, it doesn't just lead you to a wrong place, but a place of despair and hopelessness where you look at the people around you and you look at the church and you look at God and you say, nobody helped me including you, God. We put our finger right in the face of God, and, and ultimately we say, God, this is all your fault. You are not trustworthy, and we blaspheme the character and the nature of God. We often think, especially when we're looking at ourselves, that God is, and here's this word again, punishing us for our sins and our mistakes. That's exactly what the people on Malta assumed. God is punishing this man. We don't know him. We don't know what he did. He must have done something terrible like murder. He escaped the sea. He cheated the system. But now justice has caught up with him. Look at your Bible. Look at verse 4. Don't look at me. Look at your Bible. Right? You're a Christian. You brought your Bible to church, right? If not, get your phone out and look, look at God's Word. Don't look at me. What does verse 4 say? It says, justice has pursued him. Well, what is the first letter of the word justice? It's capitalized. Here's what they're not saying. 
the whole system of justice has caught up with him. You know, the, the police came and, and arrested him for this murder. He, he's, he's been taken before the courts. No, they're saying justice with the capital J. This is a personification of justice. F.F. F. Bruce, in his book, uh, The Book of Acts, tells the story that there was an existing legend or myth in this day that these people would have known of a man who was shipwrecked. He had done something terrible, but the god Dike, which is actually that, that word justice there that's capitalized, that, that's the, the Greek word Dike, D-I-K-E, did not allow him to escape justice and kills him with a venomous snake. Here's the story. A, a criminal is at sea, is involved in a shipwreck, escapes the shipwreck only to have the God of justice pursue him and kill him with a poisonous snake. Now, these people are sitting there on the island and criminals are in a shipwreck. Are you tracking with me? Wash up on shore and next thing we know, there's a poisonous snake and they all say, I've seen this movie. I know how this ends. Right, when it says Dike there, it's actually this name for this Greek goddess of justice. According to Greek mythology, uh, her father is Zeus. Her mother is a titan who is the goddess of justice. And Dike is the enforcer of justice. She's the dispenser of justice. She would not let him get away. And so she has pursued him with a snake. That's their assumption. And it's wrong. See, they think they know how justice works. They think they know how God works according to their own sort of thoughts and superstitions. They think they know how humanity is supposed to work, how the cosmos is supposed to work. And so they do exactly what we end up doing today. And that is assuming the worst and gossiping about him. Isn't that what they did? Luke was an eyewitness to this. How does he know that the crowd is mumbling these things? Because they're saying it to each other. (gasps) Did you see that? That guy must be a murderer. Just assuming the worst about somebody right off the bat. Today, it generally looks like this. We get about half of the facts, and then we choose a side. You see that every every time a major news story breaks, people get half of the facts, and then they choose a side, and they take up social media warrior status, right? As long as I got my keyboard, I can say anything that I want. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about gossip about assuming things about other people and then talking about them. Uh, Proverbs 18, verse 28 says, A perverse person stirs up conflict. Remember that next time you're stirring the pot on Facebook, by the way. A perverse person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. What is the penalty in your life if you engage in gossiping about other people, especially brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, Proverbs 18.28 says it will separate close friends. James chapter 4, verse 11 says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. That's a command. That, that's not a, you know, I think it would go better for you. I, I think things would go better for you and your church and your family if you just stopped slandering and gossiping about everybody else. This is a command. Stop it. Quit. By the way, he's saying for brothers and sisters in the church, there's no excuse. No excuse. If you're at least separated from Christ and you don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit within you, these aren't koinonia, fellowship brothers and sisters who 
You have the Holy Spirit in you, and they have the Holy Spirit in them, and therefore we have fellowship. That's what fellowship means, by the way. It's the Holy Spirit between us that is joining us in fellowship. If you don't have that, we get it. If you're in the church, he says, quit it. It's even stronger than that. This is a fantastic verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20. How many of you think pastors and preachers are supposed to be nice? That's, a, that's part of the job, right? Don't ask Paul. Here's what Paul says. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20. I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. In other words, here's what I would like the church to look like. Not just how you worship, but what your fellowship looks like. Right? We know that from what he's going to say at the end of this. And he's like, if things aren't the way that they should be, look at this next part, and you may not find me as you want me to be. That's a threat, and I love it. I think that's just phenomenal. He's like, listen, shape up, or I'm going to be there, and you're not going to like it. Meeting on Wednesday, right? That's not generally how we advertise a guest speaker coming in. <laughs> He's going to be here on Wednesday, and you're not going to like it. We just don't do that. But look what he says. Look what he says the problem is. I fear that there may be discord and jealousy and fits of rage and selfish ambition and slander and gossip, arrogance and disorder. What is it that is poisoning so many churches around our nation today? It's not just bad theology. It is bad theology. There's a lot of that out there. It's also churches that forgot what it is to be brothers and sisters in Christ. So you're just somebody that I go to church with. And by the way, if you don't look at me, talk to me, treat me the way I think you should. In fact, if you forget me, I'm going to talk horrible about you behind your back. And then say, good morning, on a Sunday morning. It's false. It's phony. We see through it. And Paul says, knock it off or you're not going to like it when I show up. By the way, this is Paul who's endured at least three shipwrecks. Paul is sort of the Navy SEAL of apostles. Don't mess with this guy. Let me give you a real practical tip here. Do you want to stop gossip? Do you want to help cut it off? Here it is. As soon as someone starts sharing that sort of tasty tidbit with you, just politely interrupt them in the middle. Like, look, I mean, you, like they're sharing it because they want to react. <gasps> Are you kidding? Oh, my goodness. Use one of those moments. Like, it, like <gasps> that is terrible. You know what? I know we don't want to be involved in gossip. Let's just pray for him right now. God, we just lift up Danielle and that big crazy leg of hers right now. <laughs> right? Whatever it is, if you interrupt them and go, now I know we don't want to gossip about it. Let's pray together. You know what they're not going to want to do at the end about? Gossip about it. Right? You, you just pulled the plug on it. So try it out. It works pretty well. The problem is more damning than the accusations and the gossip that are being leveled against Paul and get leveled against us is often the judgment that we bring on ourselves. Not what other people think about us or say about us, but the judgment that we bring to ourselves. Here's why we know the darkness that's lurking in the shadows of our hearts. Better than anyone, selfishness, secret sin. Things that you've been dragging around for years and you're just praying no one finds out about. So when these moments come, here's this word again, we say God is punishing me for blank. And then we say, and I deserve it. Dr. Randy Smith, 
who actually leads the Bible college that Aidan and Avery are both considering going to by God's will next year, said this, the devil entices us to sin by whispering in your ear, go ahead, no one will find out. No one's going to know. What's it going to matter? Just do it. No one's going to find out. And then as soon as we fall prey to whatever sin, as soon as we give into it, he changes tactics. He changes his voice and says, everyone's going to find out. He entices us by saying, no one's going to know. And then once we have fallen into sin, he says, everybody's going to know. And it's just shame and condemnation heaping up upon us. And there are so many people who live with crippling guilt and shame. There are many of you in this room who your life is defined by the crippling guilt and shame that you carry around with you everywhere you go. In fact, it has Help define all of the relationships you're in. Like, I can't let people in this close because if so, they're going to find out and whatever happened in the past is going to happen again. They're going to hurt me again or they're going to find out who I really am. We're not talking about brokenness or grief over their sin. That, that's when we recognize our sin is against a holy God. There are no sins because every sin is treason against the holy, all-powerful God of the heavens. There's no little treason, at least not in America. Go to other countries and you'll find that treason gets dealt with quickly. No, we're not talking about brokenness and grief over sin because that, that would see the connection between God. What we see in them is self-hatred. Doesn't this sound like our generation? Low self-esteem, which is really self-pity. Church, that's not looking at the implications of our sin before God. That's looking at me. And they say things like, I hate my life. And if that's true, if I hate my life, you know what? God must really hate me too. Here's the word again. This is punishment. Can you see if you start in a wrong theological place, every time bad things happen, God is punishing you. This is why that theology that says if you do things right, God will bless you, and if you don't do things right, God will curse you and punish you can be so dangerous. Paul Tripp again says the message of Scripture is that every piece of guilt and shame and punishment for our sin was completely and once for all carried by Christ. If you are a believer... If you are a Christian whom God has made his own, listen to this again. The message of Scripture is that every piece of guilt, shame, and punishment for your sin was completely and once for all carried by Christ. Romans 8, verses 1 through 4 says it like this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh. See the law, these commands of God. Do this, don't do that. If we could do that perfectly, could lead us to righteousness before God, except no one can keep the law. The Bible testifies there is none righteous, no, not one. Because of sin that has been born into us, we're unable to do it. And therefore, this perfect law is made weak by us and by our flesh. And it couldn't do it. Oh, but 
God by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. See, every last drop of that cup of God's wrath was drained on Jesus. He drank all of it. No wrath remains for us today. Except our hearts want to rebuttal to that, and we say, yes, but aren't there consequences for our actions? What's the answer, class? Yes. Do our choices make our life more difficult and more painful? Yeah. But God is not punishing you. This is not God's punishment. That if you just endure this long, by the way, this is penance. If I just endure this long enough, I will burn off that wrath of God and I can get back into his favor. That is a works-based salvation. That is another gospel. This is actually a much, much bigger deal than we generally make it. God is not punishing you in this moment because he has already punished your sin fully in Christ. You need to hear that one more time. God is not punishing you in this moment because he has already punished your sin fully in Christ. Not partially, fully in Christ. It is finished. Jesus says, it is finished, tetelestai, which means paid in full. Your debt before God for your sin has been paid in full. This moment is not God's punishment. Listen to the testimony of Isaiah 53, verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. By the way, to turn to your own way means I'm turning away from God. Away from his righteousness. Away from his law. Away from his commands. And yet God's response to our rebellion is this. And the Lord has laid on him, the iniquity of us all. All of the punishment that you deserved was laid on Christ, and he drank it all, that full cup of the wrath of God. Oh, Christian, when you see this truth, it disarms the accusation of the enemy. That you're not good enough. In fact, you'll never be good enough. In fact, when we feel like we have fallen short of the glory of God, you know what we don't want to do? Come to church. We pray for things like ice storms. God, I had a terrible week. Just felt like I gave in to sin again and again. Can you please send three inches of snow? I mean, the last thing I want to do is go sing those songs. The last thing I want to do is be reminded of God's word. The last thing I want to go do is look those people in the face. Except when you see that the fullness of the penalty for your sin was put on Christ, it frees you. In fact, it changes that moment. It turns every moment of weakness and sin and repentance into an opportunity to glorify the God who saves. Every moment where that happens reveals something us, reveals something in our nature and our character that was sinful, that was lurking down there, and then we repent of it. God refines those things out of us. He restores us, and it's not about us anymore. It's about his glorious power to save. The great reformer Martin Luther said this, so when the devil throws your sin in your face and declares to you that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? 
For I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. This is why Luther said this righteousness that makes us holy and acceptable before God is an alien righteousness. It's not our righteousness that we do enough good things or we endure enough punishment to get our way out of the trouble. He says, no, it is alien, it is foreign, it is Christ's righteousness that is placed upon us. I will never forget, in an evening we were, we were gathered together, we were praying here, this is several years ago, praying with a young family. We were sitting right there in the middle, and we had sort of chairs turned into little circles. And as we went to pray, the young wife in the circle just said this simple sentence. She said, thank you, God, that we don't have to be drunks anymore. And that just wrecked me because I knew where they came from. I, I knew the story that brought them to us by the grace of Christ and the Holy Spirit indwelling them. We don't have to be defined by the sin that has shipwrecked your life so far. God is not punishing you. This moment is about revealing his glory and his power to save. If you grab your bulletin, normally we have some fill-in-the-blanks, and we didn't do that this time. There's only one fill-in-the-blank, and I, I want you to do something with this bulletin at the end of today. Cut this center section out. Put it on your refrigerator. Here's the only word I want you to write down. Thank you, God, that you save sinners like me. Thank you that Jesus took all my punishment. Be with me today. Give me strength. Change my heart. Help me trust you more today. For those of you who are struggling spiritually, emotionally, financially, maybe, maybe it is a besetting sin that just keeps reoccurring in your life. You need to cut this out. You need to stick this on your mirror where you brush your teeth every morning. Only when you read the word sinner, see, you write the word sinner and it makes it kid-friendly. Your kids can come in and see it and not go, <gasps> but I, I want you to think into that. Okay, what is, what is the sin that has and would define my life? God, thank you that you save alcoholics like me. God, thank you that you save adulterers like me. God, thank you that you save pornographers like me. God, thank you that you save depressed people like me, angry people like me, faithless people like me, sinners like me. I want you to contemplate every single day this week. God, thank you that my life is not defined by how good I am, but that you, oh God, have chosen to save. Oh, when you see this, when you see that God saves sola gratia, by grace alone, these banners that we have on the back actually mean something. They're some of the most important truths that the church has held on to for the last 500 years, that God saves us by his grace alone and not by good, any good thing that you will ever do then every situation of struggle becomes a ministry opportunity. Look what happened for Paul. Look at verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with a fever and dysentery, and Paul visited, visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. When, he had, when this had taken place, the rest of the people of the island who had diseases also came and were cured. By the way, just a note here, there's no dropouts in there. It doesn't say, and most of the people who came were healed and cured. 
Everybody who showed up got healed. Just, just a thought. Verse 10, they also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, which is three months later, they put on board whatever we needed. I want you to, to focus in on the word neighborhood here. In the neighborhood where they crashed, in the neighborhood where they were rescued, where they had a giant fire, where Paul gets bit by a snake. In this small island, it, the island is only about nine miles by, I think it's 17 miles. It's a really small rock that they've landed on, and word travels fast. And it reaches a guy described as the chief man of the island, Publius. Now, we're, we're not given details, which is strange after chapter 27, where we're given ridiculous, minute details about things we don't even understand. We don't know what it meant for him to receive him and be hospitable to them. But for three days, he was in the neighborhood. He was showing hospitality. Let me ask you a question. What happens if you spend three days hanging out with somebody? You generally get to know them pretty well. Right? You get past all of the initial just surface greetings and things like that. Why is it that most Christians don't see fruitful evangelism in their lives? Because we never invest time in getting to know people. That, that's sort of a secondary thing. Man, I, I've got other stuff that I'm doing that's way busier and more important. We don't make time to get to know the people in our neighborhoods, plural. The street that you live on, the place that you work where you play, where, where your children play. These are neighborhoods. These are people God is routinely connecting you with. Paul's just been through the worst two weeks imaginable. Right? Lost at sea. Shipwrecked. Bit by a snake. And yet he doesn't go, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. At least for the next couple days, Paul out. Here's my least favorite phrase that I hear over and over again today. I'm just so over it. Here's another great response. No, you're not. If you were over it, you wouldn't be standing here complaining about it right now. Go ahead and go ahead. That's free. I give that to you for free. Next time somebody says that, I'm over it. No, you're not. All right. We're not, we're not given any details, but somehow Paul has interaction with this guy Publius, scratches beneath the surface a little bit, gets into his life and finds out that his father is sick. We know that's true because it's not in a welcome speech. You wouldn't do something like this. Like, I'm Publius, I'm the chief man of this island. Welcome to Malta. My father has infectious diarrhea. That's what dysentery is, by the way. In fact, it's infectious diarrhea that can kill you. That's dramatic. And, and you usually don't use that, like, in a speech as an opening remark. All right, go around the room. Now say your name and something dramatic about yourself. Right, this wasn't an icebreaker that they were doing at youth group. Somehow, in three days, Paul scratches beneath the surface in Publius's life. In fact, he scratched down to Publius, his deepest need, his desire, the thing that was weighing on his heart. Do you know if you just spend a few minutes talking to people and listening to them, they will generally tell you super quick their deepest need and the thing they're most concerned about in their life. All you got to do is ask them a couple questions. We all have neighborhoods that we live in, that we work in, that we play in. But how often is our interaction no deeper than going to the mailbox like, hey, John, crazy weather we're having, right? Wasn't it spring yesterday? <laughs> no, these are momentary conversations squeezed into an otherwise busy life 
And then we're surprised when they're ineffective when it comes to sharing the gospel evangelism. Henry David Thoreau said this, the mass of men lead quiet lives of desperation. Lead lives of quiet desperation. Unconscious despair is concealed even under what are called games and amusements of mankind, yet there is no play in them. There's no joy underneath these things that are these momentary diversions for most of our world. Last week, we said one of the reasons when God created the heavens and the earth, when he creates this island of Malta, was so that Paul would have a place to crash into with his ship. But equally true, if you turn that around, Paul didn't crash into Malta. Malta crashed into Paul. In the middle of their quiet despair comes an ambassador of Jesus Christ, filled with the Spirit, strengthened with the Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit living in him, bringing the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's rule and his dominion upon the earth. Every single moment, every situation, every person that he talked to or encountered, he brought the kingdom of God with him. This island crashed into Paul. Paul was a hurricane force for the gospel that came. And I would argue that was actually Jesus' ministry as well. Jesus, when you look, Matthew chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For these dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Oh, the authority, the power, the rule of our God is coming close to you. Christ's ministry was an invasion of light into darkness. And then he commissions his disciples with that same ministry of invading light into darkness. See, in Luke chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, he says to them, whenever you go into a town and they receive you, that, that's an important phrase, when they receive you, eat whatever is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Notice the components that are here. It starts with them being received. What happened with Paul on this island? Well, the natives receive them and Publius receives them. What happens in the call to the apostles? Go and where they receive you, where God has already opened that door. He's already connected you with them. Then there's some time of food and hanging out. We want to say fellowship, but we'll just say time because fellowship actually happens between believers. This isn't fellowship yet. The Spirit of God isn't in them yet, but that may very well be why he has sent you there. Heal the sick. Cast out demons. The kingdom of God has come near to you. See, God has been at work in their life. It's not like God just showed up when you did. God's been at work in their life. He is the author and the finisher. Psalm 3 says salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his work. God just happened to enlist you in his unstoppable mission. Now, in enlisting you, I, I, we don't have time for this. I just want to make a quick comment. You're not an apostle. Look at the person next to you and say, you're not an apostle. Ooh, man. I, we, I, we know that for a couple of reasons. Acts 1, 22, 23, when they go to replace Judas with Matthias, one of the requirements was it has to be someone, if they're going to be an apostle, it has to be someone who was with us from the beginning of Jesus' ministry who can be an eyewitness testimony to his death and resurrection. And zero people in this room qualify for that. By the way, zero people on this planet at the middle, at the minute, even though they have the name apostle shoved on their name, qualify for that at the minute. Just 
Just a thought. Also, they go in and heal everybody. Uh, one of the questions that uh, Kosti Hinn, Benny Hinn's nephew, uh, started repeatedly asking of his uncle is, why are we not going to the hospitals? Why, why aren't we emptying, emptying out every emergency ward in every city that we go to? Why are we not doing this? Because it's not the same apostolic anointing that these guys had. There were no dropouts. When all of the town came to Paul, it says, and he healed them. All of them. Uh, one of the most helpful descriptions of this is someone coming from a charismatic background, because uh, I, I always wrestled with this, like, there's sort of the yeah, but factor that comes in. Here's a helpful way of thinking about it. The apostles of Jesus Christ operated in the gift of healing very much like today we have people who operate in the gift of preaching and teaching. So right now, if I said, hey, Dad, I'm not going to be able to finish this sermon. Would you mind coming up and just stepping in? He can make a choice. Not now. I'm just kidding. Right? This, this is an example. He is chomping at the bit. He can make a choice of his will in this moment and exercise his gift of preaching and teaching. Does that make sense? It doesn't take uh, some sort of supernatural. We don't have to get up and have him sit here and go, I'm not sure if it's going to happen this time. We'll see. But that would be silly, right? And yet that was, that, that's sort of the difference between us and the apostles. Does God heal people today? Yeah. Does God do miraculous things today? Is it every single time? No, it's different. It's different than how God worked with those apostles. I wish we could go way down that road. We don't have time. But as I said, it's different. Let me also say it's the same. We have the same Holy Spirit living within us. First Corinthians, first, yeah, first Corinthians 12, 13 says, All of you were baptized into the same one Spirit. This is the same God. Uh, Paul Tripp described it, who has unzipped you and crawled inside. This isn't about you and your power. It is the indwelling power of God within you. So the question is then, why do we miss it? Yeah, maybe we're not going to walk in the same way the apostles did, but why do we miss even the normal things around us? And I think it's because we're not looking for opportunities. We're looking at ourselves. Ask yourself this question. Who are the people who receive you in your life, who welcome you, who you have a good connection with, even if it's just superficial. Maybe it's somebody you run into at the coffee shop. Maybe it's somebody at the time clock when you punch in that you always, always seem to talk to. You know they're not a believer, but there's some kind of a connection with them. And then there's this series of questions. Who are these people? I mean, really, who are they? What is Jesus already up to in their lives? What, what is their area of greatest need, and how can I join him? How can I be part of what God is doing with them? Verse 8 says, Paul visited Publius, his father. By the way, visited makes it important. That means his father wasn't there. This wasn't a conversation that came up because Publius's father was in the back room. Oh, well, let's just go see him. No, this was part of a conversation, and it ended with Paul going, let's go. Let's go. Let's leave this place and go to where the hurt and the need is. See, the people thought the shipwreck of Paul was about judgment. It was actually about God's salvation coming to them. It was about the gospel. The rest of the New Testament, talking about what Paul says, we know everywhere he go, he declared the gospel of Jesus Christ. He argued and persuaded that Jesus was the Christ. We know that was part of it. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, This is the reason I, Paul, am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. It's for the sake of you Gentiles. Why am I going through this? It's for your sake. Why did I endure a shipwreck? It's for your sake. Why did I get bit by a snake? It's for your sake. 
Maybe this conversation doesn't even happen if he doesn't get bit by a snake. Maybe Publius brings it up because, you know what, there's something supernatural and miraculous about you and your life. Can you do something about my father? Christian, are you living your life in such a way that demonstrates the power and glory of God that people are attracted to it and say, you know what, I've got a problem in my life. Maybe you can help me. Would we say, as Ephesians 3.1 says, I, put your name in there, have gone through a divorce for your sake. I've gone through bankruptcy for your sake, the loss of a loved one, a battle with cancer, and it has prepared you to comfort others with the comfort you've been given. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. See, God has worked these things in your life not because he is punishing you. Have we said that enough to make it clear? God is doing something in you. He is refining you, but it's not just about you. This is part of his unstoppable mission. How do we start engaging in that? Well, it starts by creating opportunities to ask simple questions of people. Hey, where do you work? Tell, tell me about where you work. If you ask about work and family and where they live, most people would tell you their life story. And I don't like talking to people. That, that's why I married up, right? If you marry up and you marry an outgoing person, everybody wants to talk to her, and I can just kind of stand quietly behind her while she does all of the talking, and I'm very grateful for that. Right? And yet, even an introvert like me can say, hey, uh, where oh, did you grow up there? Where, where'd you grow up at? Where do you work? Tell, tell me about what you do. How'd you get into that? Tell me about your family. You married? You got kids? Simple questions, and people will almost immediately reveal their deepest need. Here's a good way to go about it. Have some of these conversations with your neighbors, and then can we just agree to make a New Year's resolution together? Can we do that? That way we're not, can we do that? Okay, good. I, you're like, no, we're out. We want no part of this. Here's a New Year's resolution. Let's pray more for our neighbors. Decent, right? So next time you're having one of those conversations, you know what? They just told you their deepest need, the, the thing. By the way, people will just keep coming back and coming back to the things that concern them. You know, I, I made a New Year's resolution. They challenged us to do this at church, to pray for, for our neighbors. But what is, what is like one thing that I can be praying for you about? And You will just crack through the surface of that ice. They can be somebody who's like, I don't believe in God. That's not going to do any good. But you know what? My father's still sick. Might as well. Find ways to get involved. Ask the question, what is God doing here? Pray for them. By the way, pray for them like somebody who is filled with the Holy Spirit, not like an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here's how apostles of Jesus Christ, that it says Paul prayed for him, and then he put his hands on him, and he healed him. Did you catch that? Sometimes we pray in a way that actually makes it a little more difficult for people to come to faith because we're assuming bad theology that God's going to work a certain way. Oh, what? Man, you, you've got to have knee surgery. God, heal this knee right now by your power. Totally heal this knee. Amen. And we walk away as if that was the only thing that was worth praying about. And then what happens when they aren't one of them that gets their knee miraculously healed in that moment? I guess God can't do that. And then you can back up and have the conversation. Well, God doesn't always heal everybody, I pray for. Why not? Is he weak? How about this one? Does he not care about me? 
Can you see how praying just a certain way, even praying in faith, knowing God can do anything, can actually lead people down the wrong direction? I would say pray for the knee, but then more importantly, oh God, would you be right here in the midst of this situation? God, you know the pain and the suffering that this guy is going through. God, you knew it before it ever came. I pray that he would feel your closeness, feel your presence. God, enter into this moment with him. See, God was there to begin with. They are just oblivious to it. Oh, so much better when we pray and invite God in. God is already at work. He doesn't need our invitation. God is sovereign over all things. He doesn't need us to welcome him in, but that person just might. They just might need your introduction. See, God is at work in our lives. He's at work in the people around us. Often they and we just don't know it yet. Worship team, if you guys would come on up, we're going to wrap this up. I want to ask you a couple questions as they're coming. And the first is this. How have you felt shipwrecked and snake bit by life? What are the things in your life where you feel like it's just been worse upon worse? Man, I, I've gotten mistreated. God hasn't been loving. He hasn't been kind. He hasn't been fair to me. In the midst of that, I want to I say what we've said about half a dozen times already. God is not punishing you. If you are in Christ. Now, if you are not in Christ, I still don't think God is punishing you. But there's coming a day where God will punish you for your sin. You need to hear that really clearly. But if you are in Christ, then the fullness of that punishment has been laid on Christ. And what God is actually doing in this moment is revealing your pride. He's revealing your self-reliance. See, you thought you could do it all yourself and you didn't need anybody else. Until the bottom dropped out and all of that pride and self-reliance went away. And actually we see it for what it is. It's actually self-worship. Who is the sovereign ruler of your life? Who gets to decide what is right and wrong, what we're going to do, where we're going to go? Who's going to make things happen? By the way, that's God's job. And the answer to most of, the, of us is it's me. God uses suffering and adversity to reveal self-worship. He is lovingly directing your steps and commanding your worship. Well, we've just been focused on ourselves. That's all we could think about. It's all we could see. And so I would challenge you, grab this, this little printout that, that's in your bulletin. In place of anger and frustration, you let that go just a little bit of time. And what you don't get is people who go, I make a terrible God. Like, I, I am ruling everything in my life, but you know who I'm angry at? I'm angry at you and you and you and him. Even though I thought I was the God in my life, everybody else has let me down. In place of that anger, in place of that frustration, put on the remedy to that, which is praise and prayer. Do it every single day this week. Thank you, God, that you save sinners like me and know what you mean when you say sinners. Be specific. Thank you that Jesus took all of my punishment. You need that reminder that God is not punishing you today. And then the individual bullet points of strength. Be with me today. I'm not going through this day alone. God is right here with me. God, even as you're here with me, give me your strength. But don't leave me like this. God, change my heart. 
help me trust you more today. I promise you, if you've come into this room struggling this morning, you will come back a different person next week if you pray this every single morning you get up. It will change the way that you look at life. Here's the second thing to think about. Look for opportunities to share his grace with those in your neighborhood. If this same God who is gracious to you wants to reach out to those around you, I gave you a space in your bulletin to write this down. Who and where is my neighborhood? Here's what my neighborhoods are. It's my street. It's where I work. It's the people in my subdivision. It's these three people who live next to me. Who do you already have a connection with? Now, if you're, if you're a horrible person like myself, then we can live in the same spot for almost 20 years and still have almost no connection with our neighbors. Maybe you need to build a connection with your neighbors. How about the neighborhood of where you work? Who is it that God has connected you with there? How about something as simple as like uh, the sports team that my kid plays on? You end up sitting with the same parents week after week. Whatever that hobby is in your life, these different neighborhoods that God has connected you with, and then ask the question, who are these people? What is Jesus already up to in their lives? What is, you know, most of us would be better neighbors if we just said, what's my neighbor's deepest need? What's their deepest struggle that they're going through right now? And how can I join Jesus in his work in their life? It's really what it's about. It's joining together, not because we have anything special. Paul didn't have anything special. He had the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in him just like you do. Stand on your feet with me and let's pray. Father God, in just a moment, we're going to come to the table of communion and be reminded in the elements of bread and wine that we have been joined together with you and with one another. No, God, in this moment, I pray that you would remind us that that joining is not based on our righteousness, on our intelligence, on our achievement. No, that joining unto salvation with our God, that joining unto life and encouragement with our brothers and sisters is based on the righteousness of Christ being put upon us. That the fullness of the punishment for our sin was poured out upon Jesus Christ in his broken body, in his blood that was shed. Lord, that's why we come week after week and we preach the gospel to ourselves in these elements. And we say, oh God, because of this, we have hope. And we do this in remembrance, proclaiming your death and resurrection until you come again. Our hope is anchored in Christ. And apart from him, we have no other hope. So I pray today for brothers and sisters who are struggling in this room, who feel shipwrecked and snake bit by this life. I pray, God, that you would fix their hope on Christ this morning. Oh, God, that they would see that this has not been punishment. This is you revealing sin inside them, you revealing self-reliance so that they might repent and be restored. God, this is about you saving them. This is about your grace through them to those who live around them. Oh, God, help us to stop making every moment about ourselves and see your sovereign hand at work. 
Help us acknowledge, O oh God, that we cannot fix ourselves. But your word says that before Christ, we stand condemned in front of you, Lord, that we are actually dead in our sins. And that it is Christ alone that raises us, that gives us life, that you've chosen from eternity past to save us. And so I pray, God, that we would stand securely upon that hope that is not based on me. In my weak, failing faithfulness, but oh, looks unwavering to the faithfulness of Christ. As we come to the table, I would encourage you this morning, let's just stand for a moment and allow God to search our hearts. For those of you who are believers, this is the moment to say, Jesus, where have I trusted myself more than you? Where have I trusted my own righteousness? And therefore, when I fell short of your glory, I felt like you were punishing me, you were angry with me, or you were disappointed in me. Oh God, help me trust again that you are the sovereign king of the universe and that your plan for my life is still on track. God, give me grace again to repent today. If you're not a believer and you're here this morning, we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you are here to hear the God-honoring, Christ-exalting, gospel-centered good news that your salvation is not actually about you. It's about God's power to save you, and yet we are called to respond and surrender and submit to that. So if you're not here and you're not a believer, I would encourage you, don't come to this table. Not because we want you to feel awkward and uncomfortable standing in your seat where you are, but because this is an important moment for you to say, God, I actually need that kind of salvation because I've tried it in my own life and I make a terrible God. I actually need you to save me out of the desperateness of my life in this situation. Just stand before the Lord. Allow him to examine your heart. If there's sin, repent. If you've not trusted in him right now, this is your moment. Call upon him. Oh God, save me.